Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Good evening, Rabbi Hirsch. First of all, just wanted to thank you very much for a fascinating tour of the Cambridge Geniza. As promised, we went forth with the promise that we gave on the podcast. There was a lot of demand and apologies again for the people who couldn't make it. Hopefully there will be a follow-up session, but the feedback has been fantastic. Okay, people, good. The people, I mean, the attendees had no idea that around the corner you can literally hold history that that isn't anywhere in the world. So that was very enlightening, informing, and they very much enjoyed, so thank you for that. We are now back to the series on the Holocaust that we're in the middle of. This is especially for the three weeks, and now this is part four of our five-part series. Now you've told me that we're in for a very special story tonight, very unique. So the, the topic is informants, collaborators, and opponents, and it all occurs within one narrative. In fact, um, the following story has so many twists and turns that you are almost forced to ask whether it is true. Um, However, certain facts are self-evident, as you'll hear, and various books describe the events, including one that was promoted by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and written by a non-Jewish researcher. So, unlike usually where I drive you crazy and interrupt you, tonight I think I'm just going to let you say your narrative. If it's going to be a, it's okay. going to be a story, we'll get lost in it. Right. So it starts in the innocence of a family in pre-war Poland, and descends into the agonizing loneliness that required unbelievable perseverance to face and live through each day. Naftali Salashitz was the youngest of nine Hasidic children, born in Galician Poland, not far from Reicha and Lancet. The family were relatively comfortable. They ran a dry goods store in town. Life was a little primitive. There was no electricity. Uh, But by 1939, a number of his sisters were married to yeshiva scholars, including one who was a graduate of Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin. They all lived either in the family house itself or next door. And unusually for a Hasidic family in the smaller towns, although the family spoke Yiddish at home, they were all conversant in Polish. A week into the war, the first German tank appeared and accompanying soldiers plundered their houses. And from that day, new regulations appeared continuously, but obviously far worse was to follow. Naftali's older brother, Leibusch, was already married, and it was in his house that the family had what would be their last Shabbos and their last Shabbos meal together in June 1942. The Germans came looking house to house for slave labor, and the women opened the door, the men hid, Leibusch and Naftali in the attic, their father in the outhouse, but unfortunately he was discovered by the Nazis. 
two of the girls ran outside begging the Nazis not to hurt their father, but in response the Nazis lashed out at them, knocking them to the ground, pushing their father into the shed, which was followed by two gunshots. And a moment later, they heard their father's voice. He was wounded. He was still just about alive. He yelled out, Nakoma, Nemt Nakoma, take revenge. And in his last moments, he called out, Shema Yisrael, and then it went quiet. And the family buried him that day with a knife in his hand. What does that symbolize? That he was murdered. And that night, the family lit a candle. Although candles were unavailable, their father had been saving little scraps and was preparing a candle to mark the anniversary of his father's yachtzeit. Instead, it was used to mark his own. A few weeks later, the family was deported to a larger town, but the Nazi commandant announced that he was looking for a hundred able-bodied men to demolish the former Jewish district of Kolbasov. This group included Naftali and Leibush, and they were led away from the rest. Naftali recalls, With each board we tore from a building, we were destroying centuries of Jewish life. It was the death of an entire way of life. This is where we were born, lived and died, and they were making us wipe it off the face of the earth. It was as if we had never existed. During the weeks that they laboured there in isolation, the rest of the family were tragically deported. His mother somehow managed to send them a letter just before, in which she wrote, I don't know what will become of us. We will, it seems, share the fate of the whole community. But you, Naftali, are young and strong, and your duty is to live. Don't let orphanhood break your spirit. Stay alive, and when the war is over, let the world know what the Germans did. The brothers hired a local Polish man to search for their loved ones, and he reported back that they had been transported to Belzec, the death camp. And this included all his unmarried and married sisters, their husbands, children, his mother, and Leibusha's wife and three children. And at that moment, they realized that the ground is burning under their feet, and it was only a matter of time until they too are going to be rounded up. Naftali looked quite Polish, so they decided that they would try and live amongst the non-Jews with false identities. And in fact, over the next two years, Naftali would encounter the very best and the very worst of the local population. He gets a message to a Polish woman who had done business with his father before the war, asking if she could get him Polish identity papers. She introduces him to a local priest who supplied him at no charge with the birth certificate of a Polish Catholic who'd been killed at the front in 1939. And this woman also advised him of the uh, rough, the, the presumed location of a Jewish partisan group in a forest nearby. They escaped from their work detail and a few nights later found their new, so to speak, family in the forest. About 40 people, all Jewish, who'd fled. One of them, Avram Zaiden, had also brought along his wife and their small child. And Naftali says, we called this little child Tarzan because he lived in the woods. We all loved him. Leibush especially, who had lost his children, enjoyed so much being around this happy little child. 
it also made things seem more normal to us to have a little innocent child running about. These fugitives would try and maintain a low profile because they didn't want to attract the attention of the Germans. Obviously, they needed food, and that meant that they carried out local raids, but generally in small groups. So everything is um, routine for a few months. And then one day in January 43, several members of the group, including Naftali and Leibush, returned to the bunker, and they felt that something was very wrong. They entered the bunker, and they found the entire group dead. Polish peasants had murdered them. In the words of Naftali, Worst of all was the sight of little Tarzan lying beside his mother, lifeless. Such pity for anyone I have never felt, as I did when Avram, who was with us, knelt down and held his dead child and kissed his wife goodbye. And at that point, the only thing that kept us going was the desire to see the Germans lose the war and to take revenge. Every time I felt like giving up, I thought about that. So they lived on the run. They've got now no permanent shelter. They're living basically hour by hour, eating and sleeping wherever they could. And after eight uh, difficult months, there's another winter approaching and the forests of Poland are merciless. And just as the Germans began to lose the war in the east, another enemy came onto the scene. The nationalist Polish Home Army Resistance Movement, known as the AK. The head of the AK gave an order in late 43 that they should kill all Jewish Bolshevik bandits, which was basically interpreted to mean any Jew on the run. And gangs began to roam the forests. But just then, as their future was, you know, looking particularly bleak, Naftali found out that one of the local AK commanders was a boyhood friend called Stashek. He'd sat next to him in school, you know, for years. So he hopes that he'd be allowed to fight in this Polish partisan brigade. I mean, after all, they did have a common enemy in the Germans. So they make contact with great trepidation. They're, they're literally putting their lives on the line. They meet... And Stashek appears welcoming, but his brother Jaszek seemed more of a threat. And one evening, shortly after they had arrived at this partisan camp, Stashek came to Naftali's tent and asked him for his flashlight for a minute. So Naftali handed over, and suddenly all the lights go out, completely dark, and there were four gunshots in quick succession, and Naftali fell backwards, knowing that he's wounded. And deep inside, the thought occurs to him, if he's going to die, so should these murderers, these traitors who'd once been their classmates. And as a partisan, his gun is always with him. So as Naftali lies on the ground, he fires two shots at Yashik. And after the second shot, Yashik falls. And in the glare of the gun flashes, um, the brother... Stashek turned and ran, and as he did, Naftali pulls the trigger again, and this bullet hits him in the back. Naftali writes, It was silent and almost dark. We were barefoot. I was wounded. I didn't know how badly, and we were terrified. We ran as fast as we could. I remembered there was a fence that we ran through that and a small brook. If the AK caught us now, they'd torture us and then kill us. That much we knew. So if it came to a shootout, 
They would kill as many as possible, but save the last two bullets for themselves. Knowing that they obviously needed medical care, they make their way, as best as they could, to a friendly farmer who examines Naftali's wounds. He'd been shot three times in the neck and once in the right hand. He would have those scars for the rest of his life. But by some miracle, he's alive and walking. So the farmer does his best. Then he gives them some old clothes and shoes. But Leibusch's feet were too large for the shoes. So he had to remain barefoot in the snow. They cross a pond that was only partly frozen. And Leibusch's feet break through the ice. And his, his feet are sliced to ribbons. But they can't. They can't wait. If they delay, they will get killed. And their medical condition is only the start of their problems, because having killed two sort of ranking members of the AK, they're now wanted men, and the AK place a reward of 100,000 zlotys on Aftali's head, which means that their real hope for survival, their only hope for survival, is with the Russians. Eastern Poland was where the fighting was taking place. The front line was near and, you know, roads by that time were actually jammed with retreating German soldiers, tanks, equipment. So having nothing to lose, Naftali decides he has to find the Russians before either the Germans or the Poles find him. And he crosses no man's land into enemy lines. He's stopped. He's interrogated by the Russians. And he's eager to fight and, and take revenge. He's eager to prove, you know, his worth. So he advises the Russian major of the local lay of the land. He gives details of troop movements in the area. And by helping them, he's eventually allowed to join them and provided with documents of another Polish Catholic um, that were captured during a fight. And this way, the AK wouldn't be looking for him anymore because his old alias no, no longer existed. What about Libus? He's given temporary shelter and he would survive and regain the ability to walk. Incredible. How was he able to do it? You know, to summon up the courage, the strength to move on? Well, in fact, there is even more to come. He becomes part of the Polish regular army under Russian overall command. And a number of months later, he transfers or he was moved into army intelligence and he becomes eventually a captain in the army. But as he puts it, the loneliness was indescribable. All his family have now been killed. But as a uniformed Polish army officer, his identity as a Jew is obviously uh, completely under wraps, complete secret, he is able to help many Jews who are still in great danger. As an example, one day a Polish peasant came to him and offered to show him where a Jewish family was hiding. It was a husband, a wife, and two little boys. And the Polish peasant said, I just want their clothes as a reward after you kill them. So Naftali hides his obvious anger and he takes the peasant out onto the frozen ice of the Vissula River. He cross-examines him and gets the details not just of this one Jewish family but the names and locations of other Jews in hiding and then he finishes off this peasant with two gunshots as he put it the man kept saying but you know the Polish army was going to clear Poland of all its Jews which gives you an idea of what life was like even in the aftermath of the war 
So Naftali rescues this family and he made arrangements for them to be taken to a safe place. I guess this is one of the ways he was able to move on, considering. Yep. This was, you know, worth living for, you know, protecting Jews who would otherwise have been murdered. But then he's given his most dangerous mission. He has to cross into Krakow as the Germans were leaving town because throughout the city, the Germans had built hollow columns, each about eight foot by three foot, and filled them with enough dynamite to destroy substantial sections of the city. And the plan was, the German plan was, to slow down the Russian troops, and they had 287 places which they mined. Naftali volunteers for this mission, and he understands that the longer it takes to liberate Krakow, the longer the journey will be to liberating Auschwitz, which is 50 kilometers to the west. So it's, this is dangerous. This is playing for very high stakes. But at this point, let's leave the scene for the moment and move to another Jew and another account of the last days of the war. Amelie Petranka who is the middle one of three daughters born in 1922, living in Stanislavov. When Hitler expelled the Polish Jews from Germany in November 38, just before Kristallnacht, refugees end up in their town, and the Petrenkas see firsthand what life under the Nazis could be like. And when the Germans occupy the town, Amelie and her sister Celia were assigned to work at Gestapo headquarters to clean the toilets with their bare hands. And Amelie would say of this, this is so typical of the Germans. They always made things worse by finding a way to humiliate us. They wanted to break us, not just physically, but mentally and rob us of dignity. But the price for defiance was high. Celia was the first in the family to learn how merciless the Nazis could be. One day, a group of Hungarian Jews are imprisoned in the courtyard of this Gestapo building, and they're crying out for for food, for water. And when she thought no one was looking, Celia took the little food that she had and, and pushed it through the bars. She is caught, she's imprisoned. And Amelie hears, he, he, she rushes to the officer in charge. She begs him to get her sister released. It's all in vain. And along with the other imprisoned Jews, Celia is taken and is shot. And she's in an unmarked mass grave somewhere in, in Poland. In an interview, Amelie added, I want to tell you that after Celia was taken away, my mother's chestnut hair turned completely white overnight. She was 41 years old. But I saw terrible, horrible things in the ghetto, as well as deeds of the greatest selflessness and compassion among the Jews imprisoned there. The opposite, the very opposite of the behavior of the Germans. I saw mothers trying desperately to keep their children alive with soup that was mostly warm water with a few potato peels in it. I saw parents give the food from their mouths to their children. And I saw children do the same for their parents. I saw strangers helping people on the streets. Genya, the sister of one of my best friends, developed tuberculosis and refused to eat. She insisted that her share of food be eaten by her loved ones because they had a better chance at surviving. And in the winter months, she saw people who had simply frozen to death. 
to think that I was actually seeing such things with my eyes and that just a few months ago I was a happy-go-lucky schoolgirl. My worries then were my grades. What is it like to find out that you are considered disposable? As the Holocaust progressed, unfortunately, her family were taken one by one. But she has blonde hair, she has a flair for languages, and she takes the same decision as Naftali and Leibusch had done, to disguise herself as a Polish Christian. She didn't have any family in Krakow, but knew that her father's boss, called Jerzynitsky, had moved there in 1939. And she arrives then, luckily for her, he is listed in the phone book. So she goes to his home, she knocks on the door, and his wife answers the door and let her in. And she stays there for three weeks, um, masquerading as the family's uh, governess. But eventually, Amelie Petrenka, a Jewish schoolgirl, becomes Felicia Milazewska, a Polish Gentile. And she finds work in a German armaments company and she's surrounded by Germans and part of her wanted to scream, I am a Jew, you murderers. It, as she puts it, it might have been worth dying at that moment just to see the look on their faces. But there was obviously another part of her that said, live. Despite all their best efforts to deny you life, live and be witness to what has happened to the Jews of Europe. And one day she took quite a risk because the office where she worked overlooked a, a railway station, a stop on the line to Auschwitz. And that particular day, a transport of Czech Jews were there. And suddenly she hears the sound of thousands of people crying for water. And as she put it, I completely lost my mind for a moment. I filled a pail of water and took it to the cattle cars. I gave water to the people trapped inside until a Ukrainian policeman thrust a gun into my ribs. Beat it or I'll shoot you, he screamed. This small act of rebellion nearly cost me my life, but it was worth it. There were some moments where I really did not care if I lived or died, and this was one of them. Although there were encounters that left her with deep scars for, for the rest of her life. Particularly an incident in Krakow one night, she is confronted by a Polish policeman and a Gestapo officer who has a large German shepherd dog. The policeman felt that she was Jewish and he voices this to the Gestapo officer who inexplicably let her go. He said she is so young, so he tells her to go. And years later, she would say, I can still feel the, the sensation of turning and walking away, fully expecting that he would let the dog loose to tear me limb from limb or just shoot me in the back. She'd seen this often enough in the ghetto. Masquerading was very, very hard to do. That is why more people didn't try it, and most of the ones who did were caught. By the summer of 44, the Russians are approaching, and the construction company where she now works started to move back to Germany, and made you know, plans to, um, to evacuate. So they give Amelie the opportunity to go with them 
in December of 44 and uh, unsurprisingly uh, she turns down the opportunity she says you know she likes it where she is so she is chosen to keep an eye on the office as the sole company representative she is left in charge of the office of a powerful German enterprise and given the run of the office you know even the combination number of the safe let's now return to Naftali and his plans to get into Krakow before the Germans detonated their explosives. So Naftali and his superior, a guy called Colonel Kostenko, were convinced that there must be a blueprint that the Germans had drawn up with a map of where all these explosives are. And they learned that a German girl had been left behind in the offices of M&K. So their new assignment is get the plans, kill the woman. They make their way into the building and confront this German girl, who surprisingly expresses relief at seeing the Russians, which obviously makes Naftali very suspicious, and he starts interrogating her, and demands that she start cooperating because his patience is limited. In fact, he, um, you know, he takes off his coat uh, so that his revolver is apparent to everyone in the room, and he stands there with rage on his face, and she continues to protest that she isn't German. So he walks up to her close and says, did you make up your mind what nationality you are? And she realizes that he wants to hide the conversation from everybody else in the room. So she says to him, yes, I'm Jewish. I can prove it. I can speak Hebrew. So, she, so he says, fine, say something. And she responds, why? You wouldn't understand. It shows on your face that you have no love for Jews because it never occurred to her that Naftali might be Jewish. You know, a ranking uh, Jewish officer in the Polish army, unheard of. Okay, he says. Um, when do Jews say Kol Nidre? Obviously, she says on Yom Kippur. And then she realizes, how would he know to ask that question is, is he Jewish and she says to him can it be that you're Jewish too and Naftali standing there his eyes filling with tears about a girl he had nearly shot and he says yes I'm a Jew two miraculous Jews Naftali and Amelie who'd survived the storms of the Holocaust to witness liberation so obviously wow. yeah wow she opens the safe she gives him the plans and Naftali brings them back to headquarters. And the explosive are neutralized under the command of Colonel Svitchenko of the 47th Brigade and Colonel Muranov of the 22nd Brigade. Well, what, what happened to her? She survived the war and eventually she moved to the uh, United States. And Naftali? So for him, the fighting in Poland basically is over, but he stays on in Polish intelligence. Obviously, as we said, for a Jew to have held such position would have been impossible, but he spoke perfect Polish, he looked Polish, and after the Russian forces liberated Poland, he sees that there are still a few Jewish survivors, and they began to gradually drift back into the cities, Krakow being one of them, and as the number of Jews grew, they organized themselves into a, a remnant uh, community. And Naftali visits the Jewish leadership to reveal to them that he is a Jew and to let them know that he's available to do whatever he could unofficially to help them. And 
you know, behind the scenes, there was a lot that he could do because the small Jewish community was very vulnerable to governmental and, and personal abuse in Poland. And, you know, they accept his offer. And by December 1945, he had advanced within the security forces to the position of um, head of security for the entire county of Krakow. Although eventually he realized that he needs to make plans for the future and he leaves Europe via Germany and he ends up in the USA. In 1965, he is living in Springfield, New Jersey. And in an interview, he told the following remarkable story. Although I had slipped away from orthodox observance, one can never fully remove the chosid from his youth. One year, my rabbi suggested to his congregation of westernized Jews, who had never seen the fervor of Hasidus, that they spend the end of Sukkot in Brooklyn, New York, and observe Simchas Torah with the Hasidim. For Naftali, or Norman, as he is now known in the United States, it would be the first time in many years. Ultimately, we found ourselves in the shul of the Bob of a Rebbe, who alongside his son had endured the Holocaust in Europe, in which his father, the previous Rebbe, was murdered in July 1941. Uh, his yacht site is, in fact, next week on the 4th of Av. But on Simchas Torah, the Rebbe would celebrate, dancing with a miniature Sefer Torah for hours on end. And so, you know, with the Springfield Jews uh, standing back in reserve, Naftali plunges into the crowd. And there's a chosid there in a flowing red beard wearing a strimal standing on a chair next to the orrery, next to the ark, calling the names of those uh, honoured to dance with the Sefer Torah for Hakafis. And at one point, this man holds out a Sefer Torah and says, Zaleski, I now give this honour to Zaleski. And nobody in the room responds. So he calls out again, Zaleski. And Naftali turns from facing the crowd to look at this chosid, and realizes that the Sefer is being thrust at him. Zaleski? Me? I hadn't thought about that name in 20 years. Zaleski was a name I adopted while masquerading as a Catholic in the Polish army after the war. In bewilderment, I stepped down from the table and accepted the Sefer And as the group from Springfield peered through the windows, I danced with the Sefer in front of the Bob of a Rebbe. Eventually... I went over to the man who had called my name and I asked him in Yiddish, how do you know me as Zaleski? And he answered, because that's your name. I met you back in Krakow in the winter of 45. So my mind goes back to Ramesha Steinberg, a rabbi who by some miracle had survived the war and served as the spiritual leader of Krakow's tiny Jewish community. And Rabbi Steinberg tells him one day, that two Jewish boys from a small town outside Krakow had been arrested by the police and disappeared, vanished with no answer to inquiries made by the Jewish committee. And the likely outcome was that the authorities were holding them in a jail somewhere. So as the head of the province's security, Naftali is, at least indirectly, superior to the local militia. And the next morning... He asks all these 12 police chiefs whether they knew anything about these two brothers, and no one owns up. 
So he inspects the jails of each of Krakow's 12 precincts. But I mean, obviously, to all appearances, the inspection was simply undertaken for bureaucratic reasons. He doesn't give the, the real reason. One by one, he goes through the cells, and most of them contain exactly what it says on the records. And then he comes to a building in the precinct of Volnitsa. And the inspection is just like the others, except at the end of the basement corridor, there's one door locked tight. Naftali asks about it, and the police chief assures him that it was just a bin for you know storage of coal. But he persists uh, to be allowed to look inside, and he's told that the keys are lost. So Naftali says, no problem. He tells everyone to back away. He takes out his gun, and he shoots the padlock off the door. The door swings open, and he sees, in the dim light, two filthy figures, the two missing Jewish boys that he was looking for. Now, the police chief is, you know, uh, worried about what will happen to him, and he's, you know, he makes up excuses about confused paperwork, lost records, and Naftali berates him for his incompetence and for much worse. And then he says, listen, just clean them up, get them to my headquarters, I'll take care of this matter myself. And the police chief is relieved that, you know, he's not going to hear anything more about it. And by the day's end, the prisoners are there. And you can imagine the relief they felt after having been beaten and locked up for two weeks when they are told by Naftali that Rabbi Steinberg had sent him and that he was Jewish and he was going to get them out provided they left Krakow's territory and he never saw them again. This Hossid in the red beard giving out the Hakophis, says to Naftali, I was one of those boys. So Naftali says to him, how in the world did you recognize me? I don't know you at all. And the Chosid answers, I could never forget your face. I have constantly thought about how we were saved from that cold bin. And the minute you walked into this shawl, I knew it was you. And he said to me, you know, in Krakow, I had been an adult, clean shaven then, clean shaven now. But the Chosid had been a kid who'd matured, grown a beard. He now was wearing a Hasidic garb, and he was virtually a different person from the one who'd been set free. So while the people from Springfield, New Jersey, stared through the window of the shawl, Naftali, who had danced with the Bob of Rebbe, hugs and embraces this Chosid, his eyes shedding tears of joy. He can't even fathom such a reunion. 20 years later. Wow. I mean, it was just an incredible feeling for both of them, but, you know, overwhelmingly for Naftali. He's saved this person's life. I have, however, deliberately left one part of this amazing story out. Let's go back to Naftali and Emily in that construction factory in Krakow in January 45. Having suddenly realized that they were both Jewish, they just stood there grinning at each other. It was the most unlikely thing either of them could ever have imagined after all of these years in hiding, masquerading. So Naftali leaves that night with the plans for the mine columns in Krakow, but Amelie knew she'd be seeing him again. As she puts it, I thought he was very handsome and he told me later that he thought I was very beautiful, but there was much more to it than that. We were two Jews who had survived in this brutal world somehow. And somehow it seemed like we were meant to be together. We felt like the last of our kind. 
The first thing he did was send me two loaves of bread, an incredible luxury, better than any flowers or jewels, believe me. But more important to me than those gifts of food was his generosity towards others. As word got out that I had food, people came to me asking for some, because people now knew that I was a Jew. Many of them were like skeletons, Jews coming out of hiding or returning from the death camps. Anything they needed, all I had to do was ask Norman, and he would take care of it. He was still masquerading as a Christian in the Polish army, and he used his power and influence to help people. Amelie and Naftali got married on October 19th, 1945. Wow. Now, the wedding day brought out mixed feelings. I was very happy that Norman and I had found each other, but that day I wept uncontrollably. My mother, my father and Celia were dead. Nearly all of my girlhood friends were dead. It hit me on that day that it was forever to be going to be without them. On the one hand, elated that they had survived, but it was a very sad day. And she adds, with time for reflection, I would have given up and died if not for my husband. He was so resilient. So someday when you go to Krakow, Think of the historic city of Krakow, which was not destroyed because of Norman and I. And Amelie and Norman were married for almost 60 years. Amelie passed away in 2003 and Norman in 2006, survived by their daughter Esther and a number of grandchildren. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was definitely, definitely one of the most powerful stories I've, I've ever heard, I think, of the yeah. Holocaust. Such a unique goodness i'm gonna forgive you this time for going over time i, <laughs> I just you. i just realized it was over time right. own rep. all right i did realize that in advance but uh <laughs> no choice in the matter when you go to the united states Holocaust memorial museum you see a picture of him you guide round with an an individual who survived and he is one of the cards that you pick up when you come in incredible thank you very much rabbi hash Please join us for next week as the final episode. I'm a bit, a bit speechless after that story. Right. Um, for the final episode of the Holocaust series, as usual, any feedback, comments, questions can be sent to podcast at jd.org.uk and Rabbi Hirsch will try and address them in subsequent podcasts. And as usual, subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on another episode. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. And if you enjoyed these episodes, forward them to whoever you think will also feel that these things are appropriate. Yeah, there's many times Robert Hirsch is quite used to getting copious amounts of requests for Holocaust-related material in time for the three weeks in Tishabab where people are trying to feel the Chorban at the best in this generation. So, yeah, forward this on. And as an additional note, if you rate this um, podcast series with a, a five stars at the top, then it will make other people have an easier way of finding them. Thank you and good night.